InfoTrack continues. Once again, here's Chris Whitting. American kids are better off in most cases than kids in other countries. So why are our kids lagging so far behind in education? With the story, here's InfoTrack's Roy Mackey. Roy? Thanks, Chris. Our guest is Amanda Ripley. She's an investigative journalist and the author of a book called The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way. Amanda, welcome to InfoTrack. Thanks for having me. Basically, your book examines how other countries are out-educating their young people compared to the U.S., sometimes dramatically. We've all heard some of these depressing stats before, but maybe you can just give us a quick summary of how American kids are stacking up against students from other countries. Sure. American 15-year-olds perform about 26th in the world in math at age 15. We do better in reading, though, so all is not lost. Our teenagers perform about 12th in the world, and then not so great in science for about 17th in the world on that same test of critical thinking. Some of the countries that you term educational superpowers did not have that status just a few decades ago, so systems can change, and sometimes pretty rapidly, right? Yeah, this was why I really wanted to go travel to these countries, because, you know, Finland had a 10% high school graduation rate in the 1950s. Now they're up closer to 90%, which is well above that of the United States. So the question is, how did they do it? But it's incredibly exciting that it is possible to see that much growth in that short time. Maybe it's different in each one of these countries, but was there a particular turning point that caused their education systems to suddenly change? This is actually something they have in common. These are very different places, but it seems like each country came up against an existential economic crisis of one sort or another, and they did not have any other choice but to finally get very serious about investing in their own people's skills and education. But in every case, they did really buckle down and treat education as if it were a survival skill, as if you know it were as valuable as gold or oil and You see that manifested in many different ways, but it's not something that we've done, I don't think, in any state in this country. How does the educational budget per student in these countries compare to the United States? This is a surprising thing. You know, the United States actually spends more than most countries in the world per student on kindergarten through high school education. Actually, we spend more than all but three countries, Norway, Luxembourg, and Switzerland. Yet you don't see the results for that money. Clearly, we are spending the money differently, and that's part of the problem. But it's also safe to say that past a certain baseline, money does not yield returns in education, much like healthcare. How does class size compare between the U.S. and these other high-performing countries? One truism you see around the world is that quality matters more than quantity. It is true that at younger ages, a small class size does seem to be ideal, according to research that's done in the United States. But it really works best if you have an incredibly effective teacher. And it's better to have an incredibly effective teacher with a slightly larger class than a smaller class with a teacher who's really not been well prepared to deal with this very dynamic, challenging job. So typically, many U.S. states have had smaller class sizes than countries around the world, including some top-performing countries. That alone is actually a very, very expensive way to invest in education that doesn't consistently lead to more learning, particularly as kids get older. 
One country that I thought was kind of interesting in your book is Poland. They made a very rapid turnaround, but that's a poor country, generally speaking. And oftentimes we're here in the United States, well, poverty is a major cause for poor educational performance here. Can you talk about that a bit? The reason I wanted to go to Poland was because they have a 15% child poverty rate, which is comparable to that of the United States, much higher than many of these countries we usually hear about, Finland and Korea. So I wanted to see how they had dramatically improved their education results over the past 10 years, despite that child poverty rate. And I do think it's certainly true that in Poland and in the U.S. and all over the world, poverty does make it much harder for children to learn at high levels and for teachers to teach at high levels. So that's beyond a doubt true. But what you see is that some countries are able to compensate to some degree for that challenge, and other countries seem to exacerbate it. One of the saddest statistics you'll see for the United States is that we have very few low-income students who perform above what we'd expect given their economic challenges, whereas many, many, many other countries have low-income kids who routinely perform above what you'd expect if you have a sort of algorithm for poverty. You see all these kids around the world outperforming their own odds. Maybe we need to get into some of the specifics these countries are doing, but why is that? Well, certainly when you end up with a lot of low-income students and families all together in one school, just like in one hospital or any complex system, it is harder to give everyone the attention that they need. And that's something that we do partly because of the way we fund schools, partly because we have a long history of segregation. People always say to me, hey, our schools are so diverse. You can't compare us to these other countries. I wish that were true. In fact, most of our kids are going to schools where everybody looks just like they do. They are not actually very diverse, the schools themselves. And so that can make it oddly harder to run these schools. So part of it is that segregation. And part of it is also that we have a situation where we actually distribute more resources to the most affluent schools. That's upside down compared to most developed countries. In most places, the poorer the neighborhood, the more resources the school gets. To be fair, some states and districts are moving in this direction, so I think we are seeing a slight increase in equity, but we don't compare to places like Finland in this regard. Our guest on InfoTrack is Amanda Ripley. She's an investigative journalist and the author of a book called The Smartest Kids in the World, which examines how other countries are educating their young people compared to what's happening here in the U.S. Amanda, if you were made education secretary or maybe king for a week and you were told, hey, we want to reform the U.S. education system now, what would your first steps be? I would require the education colleges, the ones that train teachers, to only accept the top performing candidates who apply. This is something that all these education superpower countries have done. They weren't always this way, but in the late 1960s, for example, Finland shut down its teacher training colleges, which were like ours. They were of wildly varying quality and selectivity, and they educated more teachers than they needed. And they moved them all into their top eight most elite universities. So what you get from that is obviously you have teachers who are themselves better educated, But also, maybe more importantly, you send a signal to everyone else, to politicians, to parents, especially students, that you are really serious about education, that this is so hard and so important, this profession and this learning that kids must do now to thrive in this economy, 
that, of course, you are going to make it highly selective and prestigious to be part of it. And then wonderful things can happen, right? Because once everyone knows that, like in Finland, getting into teacher training college is the same as getting into MIT in the U.S., there's a level of respect and freedom that those professionals are granted. It's easier to make the case for paying teachers more. It's easier to give them the autonomy that they need. And you can have a higher level of trust in the system if you start from the beginning. Amanda, what would you say to parents who would like to see their child's education improved? Do they need to put pressure on their local school board, on state legislators, on their congressmen in Washington? What should they be doing? Really try to help your teacher and your child focus on doing work worth doing, challenging, meaningful work that will be useful in the real world and thinking for themselves. So that means when you see your second grader coming home with homework that's just busy work and you know it and your second grader knows it, that means maybe talking to the teacher about that and trying to come up with alternatives, really trying to push for more rigorous work. It's now time to get serious, I think, about higher order thinking in math, reading and, and science, particularly math and science, from a very young age. Amanda Ripley, investigative journalist and the author of The Smartest Kids in the World and How They Got That Way. And you can find out more at her website, AmandaRipley.com. Amanda, thanks for joining us on InfoTrack. Thanks for having me. And for InfoTrack, I'm Roy Mackey. You're listening to InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know.